What's up, Flatirons? How are we? Good, good, good. You ready for Thanksgiving? Man, you're the most unenthusiastic Thanksgiving crowd yet. All right. Hey, I got to be on a plane with all four of my children at three o'clock this afternoon. Pray for me and pray you're not on that plane. All right. So, hey, quick announcement for you guys before we dive in. In two weeks, we have baptism weekend around here. If you've ever been a part of this place on a baptism weekend, it's an amazing party, a huge celebration. And so if you're interested in being baptized or you know you're going to be baptized, um, you can go online. Uh, you can read all about what our teachings on baptism are, what the Bible says about baptism, what it means, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Flatironschurch.com. It's right on the front page of the website. You can check that out there. Mark that down in your calendars to make sure you're here for the party. All right. So we've, uh, we're going to wrap up this series today. We've been in this series where we've called it focus and the word focus means the center of interest or activity. And we've been contrasting this idea of focus, uh, with this idea of distraction, which means a thing that prevents someone from giving full attention to something else. And the big overarching premise of the series has simply been this, the enemy of focus is distraction, right? You don't have to believe in God, read the Bible, go to church to agree with that. That's just true. The enemy of focus is distraction. And we've been walking through this story, this interaction that Jesus had with these, these women named Mary and Martha on a day where Jesus and his entourage show up to their house to have a party. And so we're going to dive back in and just get a little refresher today as we wrap up this series. So if you got your Bibles, go back to Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38, pull out your program will be on the screens as well. Let's remember this story real quick. It goes like this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And Uh, she, she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So if you've been tracking with us in the series, here's the lay of the land. We got, we got Martha who is distracted. There's our word with much serving. She's lost focus on the most important thing by doing many good things, other important things, but not the most important thing. And then you have Mary who sat at Jesus's feet, literally assumed the position of a disciple, which was absolutely a no, no for a woman in this culture. And yet she does it anyway. And the way it translates, it literally means she gave Jesus her full attention. She listened to his word. She chose the most important thing amongst the many other good things. And so one of the things we've been covering in this series is simply this. There's a trap that you and I easily fall into, and it's being distracted by good things that get out of control in our life, which inevitably leads to this place that Jim left off last week called regret, right? You end up in a place where you regret all those decisions. So we're really in a tough spot because the reality is this, whether it's a good thing or whether it's a blatantly sinful thing, if it distracts you from Jesus, if it leads to you moving Jesus out of the center of the focus of your attention in your life, it will inevitably lead to a place of regret. So here's the thing. This is kind of a nuanced version of something I've said over and over again throughout the years. It goes like this. A good thing that becomes an ultimate thing ultimately becomes a sinful thing, right? Because when we turn our eyes away from Jesus, sin is inevitably the outcome. The result is always sin. And sin, just so we're clear, in the Bible, what sin literally means is missing the mark. It was actually a, an archery term, all right? So what it means is this. There is a perfect standard. There is a target. target there is a bullseye. And we all miss it repeatedly throughout our lives. We fall short of it. So in archery terms, it doesn't really matter if you miss by 200 yards and you maim some poor innocent bystander. Or if you miss the target by an inch, you've still missed the mark. That's what, that's what sin is. 
is. And sin's not a popular thing to talk about in our culture because the only real sin that our culture believes in is the sin of being not true to yourself or the sin of disagreeing with somebody in our age of tolerance. But what the Bible teaches and what God says repeatedly is this. Listen, I've set the standard, I've set the bullseye and you don't measure up. You miss the mark. So we're going to be talking about sin today. And the reality is I had a front row seat to sin all over the place last weekend, because as Jim so graciously alluded to last week, I was, uh, I was in Vegas last weekend. And the reason that I was in Vegas was because I had the opportunity of a lifetime. As you guys know, I'm a huge fight fan and the UFC's 20th anniversary show was out there. And one of my good friends was fighting that night on the card. And so I got to go with them and I got to be behind the scenes for all the fights. And I got to watch some of the best fighters on in the world, on the biggest stage in the world, showcase their abilities and their talents. It was absolutely amazing. But in between all that, I had to be in Vegas. And what I mean by that is to be really honest with you, I, I hate Vegas. I'm, I'm not a Vegas person. Some of you are Vegas people. I'm just not like, like if somebody were to walk up to me and say, Hey, I'll pay for you and your wife to go on a trip anywhere in the world. Give me your top 200 destinations. You'd be willing to go to Vegas would not even come close to making the list. Like for me, vacation, a trip fun is the idea of laying on a beach and hearing the sound of the waves crashing on the seashore not the sound of slot machines. All right. That's just, that's for me what, what a good trip looks like. But let me contrast some things, whether you're a Vegas person or not, you'll identify with this. All right. How many of you have flown to Vegas? All right. Another evil crowd in our church. All right. (laughs) How many of you have flown back from Vegas? It's never as many, which is interesting to me. I don't know what that means that you just forgot your flight. You got lost. All right. So, but whether you've flown to Vegas or from Vegas or not, you'll understand this contrast. Let me ask you a question. What's the difference between the flight to Vegas and the flight from Vegas? The answer everything, right? Everything is different. In fact, I would probably land with that word that Jim introduced last week. It's regret. That's the biggest difference. It's regret. I mean, on the flight out to Vegas and I flew on Spirit Airlines, I'm not even sure that's legal to fly on Spirit Airlines. That, pl- that thing is scary. If you work for Spirit, you got to admit, man, like when you pay $38 for a flight, you're not getting much. All right. And so I fly, I fly out to, to Vegas on Spirit Airlines. And even though we're on Spirit Airlines, everybody's happy. Everybody's excited. Everybody's full of anticipation and hope and the drinks are flowing and everybody's excited. My flight out from Vegas was at 8 a.m. Sunday morning. Which means that everybody on that flight either was up all night the night before or maybe got a couple hours of sleep and had to get up really, really early. Nobody was happy about it. Even before you get on the plane, you can tell this is going to be a rough morning because I'm walking through the terminal. I'm watching one guy. He'd take two steps and just lean against the wall. You could tell he thought the airport was moving. You know, it's like, is there an earthquake? Is there an earthquake? I think there's an earthquake. And then he finally found a drinking fountain and just laid his head on it. It's like stroking the drinking fountain, like, thank God for putting this drinking fountain right here, you know? And, um, we get, we get into the terminal and there's people spending their last quarters on the slot machines in the terminal. And there's people who you get on the plane, man, everybody's just, just hung over. People's makeup is running everywhere. I saw these two girls as we were getting off the plane, they both just were holding their heads, just like leaning on the headrest above them. And it was like, it was like they found clothes on the sidewalk to put on the night before. It's like, you didn't start the night in those clothes, but you ended the night in those. All right. And so it was just a, a brutal, brutal, flight back. Everybody was sick and worn out. And here's my question. What happened? What happened? I thought we were so excited to go to Vegas, everybody. What happened? Vegas didn't deliver. That's what happened, right? And now there's a bunch of regrets. 
Here's the other thing I got to, I got to do. It was kind of an interesting contrast while I was in Vegas. Uh, because I, some, some of you uh, know this about me. I go, I go to bed really, really early and I get up really, really early. And some of you call me an old soul, which at first I thought was a compliment. Now I think you're just calling me boring. But anyway, I, I go to bed early, I get up early and I'm there with my friend to help him prepare for a fight. So it's not like we're there to like stay up all night. We're there to prepare for this fight. And so he go, he went to bed early. And so I would go to bed early. And so uh, he was staying in the MGM and I was staying at a place just a couple, a couple blocks down on the street. And so when he would go to bed, I would take that, that trip down, down the street to my hotel room and about 10 or 11 every night. And as I was doing that, like, that's just when Vegas is like waking up, right? Like that's just when everybody's just starting to get the party started. There's this music blaring. Everybody's excited. The drinks are flowing. And then I would go back to my room and I'd go to sleep and I would get up at about five o'clock every morning and I would take the same stroll in reverse. And it was a much different experience. I would walk to this Denny's every morning, the Denny's on the strip. Some of you have been there. You just don't remember. And so I, <laughs> I, would, I was, I'd walk to this Denny's and what I would see was so different. Just hours before everybody was so excited. Now everybody's not very excited. Now I'm watching vomit being washed off the sidewalk and people passed out and people wandering around drunk, not knowing where their friends are anymore. And the music's still blaring, but the vibe much different. There's just a few hours in between. What happened? Why? Vegas didn't deliver, right? The night didn't deliver what everyone was hoping for. You see, the air in Vegas is full of anticipation every night, and it's full of regret each morning, is it not? What happens in Vegas doesn't stay in Vegas. What happens in Vegas happens in our heart before we ever get to Vegas. This is not about Vegas. Vegas is not Sin City any more than any other city is. Do you realize that? Vegas is not Sin City any more than Denver is. Pick the most wholesome city you can think of in America. It's not Sin City any more than that one. See, Vegas actually has the guts to put on stage what we hide in our closets in our hometowns. And at least one sense, Vegas is at least honest about what it's about. It's not honest about what it can deliver, but at least it's honest about what, it, what it's trying to give you, right? It all goes back to this idea of focus. See, by definition, in order to sin, you have to take your eyes off Jesus. You have to remove your attention from Jesus. In shooting terms, you hit what you aim at. So when you get distracted by something, you're likely to hit it, but not what you originally were trying to hit. So something gets to your attention, distracts you, takes your focus off Jesus. And often it begins with this simple belief of, oh, if I could have that, if I could be there, if I could go there, if I could do that, if I could be with her, if I could be with him, then I would be happy. Then I would be satisfied. And it may be a very good thing that you go off pursuing and what we've talked about in this series is that good thing will ultimately become something that will break you down right see martha she wasn't pursuing sinful things by working in the kitchen but don't miss this all those good things she was doing in the kitchen became sinful things the second jesus walked through the door right because regardless of whatever her motivation was for good or for bad those things she was doing were not as important as jesus himself she took her eyes off of jesus and was distracted by all these good things so good things can distract us and so can just blatantly obvious sinful things that get our attention distract us and remove our focus from jesus everything in vegas is designed to get your attention have you noticed that the lights, the billboards, the mobile billboards, the people handing out business cards on the street corner. Everything is trying to get your attention and your focus. 
Which is why it's important to keep our eyes in the right place. See, that, that's what Jim talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And we'll push even further with it this week. Look back at it again. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run this with perseverance, the race marked out for us. So whether it's a sin or not, if it's weighing you down, if it's entangling you, you have to throw it off. No runner runs the race with their previous medals around their neck. It weighs them down. It's not enough, though, to simply remove the distractions or remove the things that are weighing you down. You also have to have something or better yet, someone worth pursuing, worth following, worth aiming at, which is what the next verse talks about. Look at this. So let us fix our eyes on who? Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In other words, he showed us how to perfectly do this thing called life, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. So fixing our eyes on Jesus, all eyes on him. You know this, if you've ever run any kind of race, they were getting ready to run a, a marathon when I was in Vegas and every runner there knows you have to keep the goal in mind. You can't just wander off in some other direction. That's excess energy and it'll ruin the race. You have to have your gaze, your focus and your attention on the prize and the prize is Jesus, is Jesus. So what Hebrews is teaching us here is simply this. There are two primary things that threaten to distract us and remove our focus from Jesus. The first one is this. I call it good gone wild, good gone wild, good things that we allow to become ultimate things in our lives. Those things end up becoming sinful things. If you allow them to be the ultimate focus of your life and they'll hinder you and they will hold you back and they will weigh you down. So to Jim's point last week, it's not a sin to put your kids in sports. A bunch of my kids are in sports, but it becomes a sin the second that that becomes the sole focus and ultimate thing in your life. It's not a sin to love your wife. Of course not. But if you make her ultimate, the sole focus of your life, if you treat her like she's a God when she's not, that's a sin. It's not a sin to pursue a career, but if you make that career the center of your focus and attention as opposed to a means to an end, which is to glorify God and all that we do, then it becomes a sin. And here's what those good things gone wild inevitably lead to destruction, destruction. I've said this to you guys a thousand times when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Ultimately, that good thing becomes a very destructive thing, right? Because none of those things can deliver what you demand that they deliver. They cannot hold up under the pressure of your demands, what you're trying to draw out of them. For example, your kid's performance on a field is not worthy of being able to determine who you are and what you're about and your identity and your worth. It can't provide that. And if you demand that your kid's performance on a field or in a classroom or on a court, whatever that is, determine your worth, you know what you'll do? You'll destroy your children and your relationship with them. Because they can't provide you with your identity. They can't do it. Children make terrible gods. Right? Your, your wife cannot be all that you need. She cannot provide you with everlasting joy. She can't give that to you. If you demand that she does, you'll destroy your marriage. Your career. Man, if you put that at the sole focus of your attention and you claw your way to the top, you just might get there. And you know what you'll think? Is this all there is? You'll feel so empty. So good gone wild leads to destruction and regret. And so does just plain old sin, right? 
just blatant, this is wrong, I'm going to do it anyway, sin. And it always starts with distraction, taking your eyes off of Jesus and choosing to walk, even if it's ever so slightly, down a different path. Write this one down. This is important. The enemy of focus is distraction. We've been talking about that this whole series and distraction leads to destruction. See, we talked all about the enemy of focus is distraction, but we haven't closed the deal yet because we haven't talked about what happens. If you follow that distraction, distraction inevitably leads to destruction. It does. That's where it leads. So give you an example. One morning. Okay. I'm sitting, uh, um, I'm sitting in my hotel room. I get up, you know, five, five thirty in the morning and I'm taking that stroll to Denny's. And then I'm like, you know what? Denny's coffee's terrible. So I got to go somewhere else to get coffee. And as I'm strolling down the strip that morning, there's, it's really, really early again. And about a half a block in front of me, there's a, there's a woman in two high of heels and too tight a dress. Who's had too much to drink. And she's just stumbling all over the place, like falling all over herself. And to be honest with you in my sinful nature, normally I would find that funny, but on this day, it just made me sad. Did it just made me sad. And I go and I sit down at this coffee shop and I pull out my Bible and I start to read the book of Proverbs while I'm in Vegas. It's quite the contrast. All right. So I sit down and I'm reading these chapters in Proverbs. I read a bunch of chapters in Proverbs and I get to chapter five and these verses just really, really stand out to me. I want you to see these verses beginning in verse 21 of Proverbs five. Look at this and picture me sitting in a coffee shop in Vegas. There's still blaring music. You can't escape music in Vegas drives me nuts. So anyway, I'm sitting there and I'm reading this and here's what it says for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So literally what that means is a man's path, his journey, his established pattern of life is in full view of the creator of the universe. Everything we do, everything we say, he's watching, he's paying attention. He's not missing a detail. He did not wind up this world like a clock and just turn it loose and turn his back. No, he's intimately involved and God takes into account everything that we do. Look at verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. The word iniquities is one of four major words used for sin in the Old Testament. And the word iniquity literally means the kind of sin where you go, I know this is wrong and I'm going to do it anyway type of sin. Anybody ever done that? I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. All right. Anybody? Let's go show of hands. Let's go show. Okay. So there's about 80% of you that think you're great. All right. And so uh, the rest of us are being truthful today. We've all, we all do this all the time, right? So the word picture that's supposed to bring up the imagery he uses is that of a hunter who's laying a trap, setting a snare. And it's like, we're watching this hunter lay this trap, set this snare. And when he's done, he jumps in it. And he's hanging upside down from a tree. And the conclusion we're supposed to make from that is to go, well, that was stupid, right? But we all do it all the time. How often do we just say, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyway. And so let me ask this. When has that ever turned out well for us? Even when we get away with it, does it turn out well? No, because why? Guilt, shame, regret, all those things that still weigh us down in the The horrible part about it is it could have been avoided by simply not stepping willingly into the trap, right? Look at this last verse. This is a harsh one. He dies for lack of discipline and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Where does distraction lead? Destruction. That paints the picture right there. It leads to destruction, right? Uh, Literally when it says he's led astray, I looked that up. You know how that literally translates? He ends up a, a person wandering drunk through the streets. I'm reading that in Vegas, right? Watching it unfold in front of me. And I know what some of you guys are thinking. You're going, hey, um, easy for you to say, pastor boy. 
right? You're, you're pastor. The rest of us live in the real world with real temptations. We don't all sit around, study the Bible and pray all day like you do. The only thing I would say is simply this. You know what? There's a reason so many of us pastors screw up our lives, our marriages, our churches, and our families. You know what that is? We're tempted just like you. And without trying to sound condescending, but just to be perfectly honest with you, I think on some days we're tempted well beyond what some of you can even comprehend. See, you think I wasn't aware I was going to be tempted when I was in Vegas? Well, I wonder if I'll be tempted while I'm in Vegas. Of course. Vegas. You don't think there wasn't an endless opportunity when I took that two block trip from the MGM Grand back to the Polo Towers to waver, to, to take one step off that path? I was well aware. And so before I ever got on the plane to fly to Vegas, I prayed a simple prayer. It went like this, God help me. <laughs> and then it continued like this, God help me to see people and to see circumstances the way you see people and the way you see circumstances. You know what God did? He said, all right. And little did I know how painful that would be. It was really, really painful because God granted me that. I think he let me see some measure of the way he sees people and the way he sees circumstances. And so when I'm taking that two block walk back to my hotel room each night and when the thought crept into my head, hey, won't you just stop at that place and have a drink by yourself in Vegas? The next thought that went through my mind, I believe it was God speaking to me, was simply this. Well, that's a dumb idea. That'll turn out well, right? Go back to your room, go to bed. And when the men and the women were handing out business cards with naked women advertising girls who will come to your hotel room, my hands stayed in my pockets because I knew that the distraction of even holding one of those in my hand would lead in a path that I didn't want to go down. My thoughts turned to what I know about sex trafficking in our world and in our country and to know that the reality is those girls, most of them are in some form of slavery, literally, whether it's to a, a person who's trafficked them, a person who's abusing them or plain old slavery to sin like we've all lived in. And those girls on those mobile billboards and on those cards, guess what? They're someone's daughter, namely the creator of the universe's daughter. I don't want to stand before him one day and say, this is the way I treated your daughters. Because here's the deal. I have a daughter. You'll not stand in front of me and try to justify mistreating her. It will not go well for you. I promise. I don't want to be that guy. I don't. See, here's the deal. The process of resisting the temptation to sin began before I ever got on the plane with that prayer. Because I knew it's a fastball down the middle. You will be tempted when you're in Vegas. So you better be aware. You better be careful. And you better keep your eyes on Jesus. And if you do that, you won't take a step to the right or to the left. You'll stay in the race and you'll stay on the right path. Because a lot's riding on what you decide to do in Vegas while you're there, Scott. A lot. See, it's really interesting. As I was reading through Proverbs, it struck me that the first like seven, eight chapters of Proverbs are all about two things, wisdom and sexual sin, wisdom and sexual sin. It's almost like the author thought the lack of wisdom would lead to sexual sin. He's very, very, very correct. Is he not? In fact, just to, to illustrate that, the only story that's really told in the book of Proverbs is found in Proverbs chapter 7. So I want to read you this story and then we'll kind of talk about it a little bit. It begins in verse, verse 6. The author says this, For at the window of my house I've looked out through my lattice and I've seen among the simple, <laughs> I've perceived among the youths, make whatever conclusion you want, young people, a young man lacking sense. It's kind of like listening to my grandfather talk to me. You know, young man, 
you lack sense. Okay. So he looks out through his window, he sees somebody and immediately concludes this dude does not have any sense at all. All right. So why watch what he does because this young man is passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. That literally means she's gone to the temple to make the sacrifices for her purification from being on her period. And now she's ready to go is what she's saying. Listen to this. Verse 16. I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him at full moon. He will come home with much seductive speech. She persuades him with her smooth talk. She compels him all at once. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag, a deer is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Story over. Now listen, be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths for many a victim has she laid low and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol and going down to the chambers of death. Here's my question. Why was he hanging out near her house? What was he doing taking that road at that time of night? See, the author who writes this is so perceptive. He realizes this boy that he's watching, his heart turned down that road well before his feet ever did. Right? First his attention, his focus shifted, and then his feet followed. What happens in Vegas happens in your heart well before you ever get to Vegas. And when your heart turns, eventually your feet follow. So here's the thing. It's about to get even heavier in here today. It has all weekend. So I'm about to, I'm about to say some things that are going to, this is going to be invasive. All right. And I'll just remind you, I say these things because I love you and I want good for you. But the reality is a lot of us are like that kid, man, taking the road near her house and it's getting dark. We call it flirting with disaster, right? For a lot of us taking the road near her house means getting on a computer and getting online, right? Because 20% of the women in this room are addicted to pornography and over half the guys are. And while you may say, oh, no, no, I've got it under control. It's not going to lead to disaster. I'll be fine. -uh. I can line up thousands of people from within our church alone who will tell you otherwise from experience. They'll tell you how pornography changes the chemistry, the makeup of your brain, changes it like a drug. And it will lead to destruction. See, there's not a person in existence who has their pornography consumption under control. It's always the other way around. It's consuming you and it's under, you're under its control. You've set a trap and you've stepped in it willingly. Ladies, listen to me. Some of you, you're taking the road near her house every time you stop and talk to that guy at the office who pays attention to you. He affirms you, makes you feel good about yourself. And guess what? He's not your husband and he's got a wife and it's not you. And every time you stop and talk and every time you flirt and every time you think about him when you get dressed in the morning and look in the mirror and think, I wonder what he will think when he sees me today. Guess what you're doing? You're wandering around the hooker's house. That's what you're doing. Disaster will be upon you in short order. It's not innocent. 
It's not no big deal. It's life and death. That's what it is. See, if you're taking the road, going down that path in your heart, it will not be long before your feet will follow. So Scott, what does all this have to do with Mary and Martha? This is very uncomfortable. And you've been giving us all these sermons on grace lately, and those were nice. But what, now you're talking about sin, and this is very uncomfortable. What, why all the fixation on sin? Well, let, let's go back here to the story of Mary and Martha. And right after Martha yells at Jesus and says, man, why are you not making her help me? What's wrong with you? This is what Jesus says to her. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And I think that's a weird thing to say. I think that's a very strange response because Jesus doesn't actually say what the one thing that he says is necessary is. He describes it when he says this, Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her, which is also a weird thing to say, because the way that literally translates out is simply this. Mary has chosen what she was chosen to receive, and it will not be taken away from her. She's chosen what she was chosen to receive, and it will not be taken away from her. And that thing is a person, and his name is Jesus, and you are no different. God chose you. God decided to send his one and only son for you to pray, pay the price for the fact that you and I miss the mark on a daily basis to become our sin and our shame and our iniquity and our shortcomings. He chose you like he chose Mary to enjoy his son and the grace that he offers you and provides. See, Jesus walked in, Mary sat down to enjoy what she had been chosen to receive and it will not be taken away from her. And so when Jesus says this, I think in a sense, he's looking at Martha going back off. Back off. Don't try to distract her from the most important thing. And in another sense, I think Jesus is trying to plant a firm foundation under the feet of every follower of Jesus by saying, listen, if you've received me, if you've received the grace that I bring with me, it will not be taken away from you. You cannot lose me because you didn't find me. I found you. End of story. I've given it to you. It's yours and it's yours forever. And many of us, we raise our hands at this point and go, okay, time out. So let me make sure I got this straight. I can't earn grace by doing good stuff. It's something I receive. It's something that's given to me. And I can't lose grace by something I do. So how about I just do whatever I want because it's all grace. It's all good, man. How about I just sin all I want because of grace? And the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who we talk about around here all the time, knew we would raise our hand and ask that question. He knew it. Because that's the way our hearts are wired. And so when he's writing my favorite book in the Bible, this letter to the Christians in Rome, the Romans, he, he, he spends the first five chapters basically just hammering home grace. Just going, man, uh, grace, 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 grace. Um, God moved to you before you could ever move to him. You were as good as dead in your sin and your transgression. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly, all grace, all the time. And then he gets to chapter six, and this is what he says. So what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? Should we just send all we want and let God show off how graceful he is? What's he say? By no means. May it never be. These two things are incompatible. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And then he unpacks that for the rest of Romans chapter 6. And he gets to verse 15 and he says this. What then? He almost says the same thing. Are we to sin because we're not under law, but we're under grace? And he says it again. By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, 
have become slaves of righteousness. The way we frame it up around here is we go two deals on the table, right? Law or grace law. If you want to take that deal, you better be prepared to stand before God and say, I was perfect. I never messed up. Not one time in my life. I didn't even violate my own standards, much less yours. God, that's a bad deal. (laughs) Talked about that before, right? Or grace. God, I couldn't obey you even on my best day. Jesus obeyed on my behalf. All I have is Jesus. Better deal. Better deal, right? So what Paul is trying to say is this. If you find yourself consistently and willingly saying things like, ah, I'm just going to do whatever I want. I'm going to sin all I want because it doesn't matter because of this thing called grace. Then there's one of two options, one of two conclusions that you can make about yourself based on that behavior. The first conclusion you could make would be this. Your sinful behavior is not consistent with your true identity. It's not consistent with who you are, who Christ has made you to be, and you are free from sin. You're just not acting like it. Or here's the other conclusion you could make. Your sinful behavior is perfectly consistent with your true identity. Your true identity is you're actually not forgiven. You've not received this thing called grace. You're not a follower of Jesus. How about that for strong, right? Yet it's what Paul says. What did he say? He said, you are slaves of the one you obey. And by slaves, he simply means this. You belong to and you are owned by either. Here's the only options in existence, sin or Jesus. You are owned by either sin or Jesus. And that's hard truth. And please don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not contradicting all those grace sermons I've been preaching. I'm pressing further into them, way deeper into them. I'm not saying if you find yourself consistently and willingly sinning, that the remedy to that is to stop doing bad stuff and start doing good stuff and see if God will just call it even. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. See, here's what I've been learning about grace. Grace isn't given to perfect people. There's no such thing, but it does perfect people. It does. By a process, over time, grace changes you. Grace produces fruit. And the Apostle Paul said it in Romans 6, 15 through 18. The fruit of grace is obedience. Grace produces obedience. I read somewhere this week, I don't even remember who said it. I just remember what they said or I give them credit. But what they said was this. Grace isn't the freedom to do whatever you want. Grace is the freedom to actually do what God wants. Let that sink in. I thought that was really profound and I'm talking to myself here. I'm preaching this sermon to myself because I'm guilty of everything I've ranted about already and everything I'm about to rant about now. But I think I need to say some of these things. See, I think some of us, I think we are selfishly enjoying the fact that we are saved by grace through faith by no work of our own and we are punking out and we are lazy We just wallow in the very sin that Jesus came to pay for and to become and to forgive us of. And as we wallow in it, we just lazily whisper, it's all about grace. You know what that does? It dishonors the name of Jesus and it makes it hard on every other Christian who's authentically following Jesus to explain our actions. Does it not? Perhaps the most inconsistent follower of Jesus of all time, the apostle uh, Peter said this, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. But living as servants of God. Let me me give you an example, okay? So so I'm in in Vegas and I'm there with several friends of mine, including my friend who was fighting. And one of his coaches has become a pretty good friend of mine. And he's a a staunch agnostic. And so uh, we're hanging out, we're talking. And he finally looks at me and goes, okay, Scott, I got a question for you. You're a pastor. What about... You're like, oh, here we go. What about... 
all those preachers on TV that are like under investigation from the IRS and they teach stuff like if you have enough faith, which is primarily demonstrated by giving them more money, that God will bless you with health and wealth and prosperity. That can't be right, can it? He looks at me and asks that. So you see what's happening right there? I, as a pastor, now have some work to do. I actually have to dig out of a hole that I didn't dig, right? Because these guys' credibility is actually hampering mine in this relationship I have with this guy. And so I have to look at him and I have to go, well, well, actually, here's the deal. No, that's not the gospel. That's not in the Bible. That's false teaching. And if I was in the same room with those guys, I would choke them out and bury them somewhere because they make my life hard and because they dishonor the name of Jesus, the one they claim to serve. But if I'm really, really honest, doesn't the same go for me? And every other Christian in this room whose consistent pattern of behavior is not consistent with the grace we say we received or the Savior we say we represent, I'm just as guilty. We harm our credibility when we live in consistent and constant hypocrisy. Don't we? It's hard to explain. Yeah, me and God may be okay, but what about them? Do we not care about them? See, all throughout the New Testament in Paul's letters, he does the same thing. He spends the first bit of his letters to all these churches. You just read through them. Go read Colossians, Ephesians, Galatians. Read all of them, Philippians. The beginning is all about grace. Grace, 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 grace. And then there's always a moment where he goes, okay, therefore, in light of all of that, because of all that, now go and do the following. And the things that he points to, don't miss this, are not conditions for salvation. They're evidence of it. So he says, go, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Parent this way, uh, work this way, speak this way, eat this, don't eat this, drink this and don't eat, don't drink that. Celebrate this way and don't celebrate that way. All of those things he says, listen, represent the one who owns you. He wrote a letter to perhaps the most just screwed up church of all time in 1 Corinthians. He had to write a second letter too to them. And in the first one, in the context of all this sexual sin that's going on in this church, he says this, and here's the deal. Uh, what, what you do with your body is a great indicator of where your heart is. And so he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Watch this. You are not your own. How about that for flying in the face of American individualism? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'll give you another one. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That little verse should make us ask a question. Okay, so if I'm supposed to walk in him in the same manner in which I received him, I have to ask the question, how did I receive him? Did I work to earn his grace, love and affection? Nope. How did I receive him? Freely. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, freely so walk in him freely freely walk which does not mean to freely walk back into slavery to sin it means to walk in a way to live in a way let the consistent pattern of your life reflect the one who paid the price for you loves you and owns you not so that you can be saved but because you are saved Because taking the path back to slavery to sin always leads to the same place. Loss and devastation and regret. It's the plane ride home from Vegas. Is it not? It's the walk down the strip at 5 o'clock in the morning in a drunken stupor wondering what happened, what went wrong. A lot of you have been asking Jim and I, okay, we hear you, but what about the fact that I've already blown it? 
I'm already dealing with so much regret and I live my life under the weight of that regret. What do I do to get out from underneath this heavy, heavy regret? And my first answer is honestly, nothing. What I mean by that, if I were to expound on it, I would simply say this, lean on what Jesus did for you. Lean on what Jesus did for you. You press further into the transforming truth that Jesus paid the price, not only for your sin and your shame to remove your guilt, but also to set you free to remove the chains of sin, which means to be set free from regret, which doesn't mean that one day you're magically just going to sit here and look back at your life and all the regretful decisions that you made and go, I don't regret those anymore. No. What it means is that you are free to not be defined by your past regret and those decisions anymore. You are free to not allow those things to have authority over you. Why? Because you're not God. That's why. People ask me all the time about this idea of self-forgiveness. How do I forgive myself? And to be brutally honest, the idea of self-forgiveness is not even in the Bible. You know why? Because it's not the ultimate issue. The ultimate issue is whether God forgives you. Why? Because the person who is most offended, affected, and harmed by your sin was not you. It's not another person in this room. You know who it was? God. And if he who was most affected and offended by your sin sent his one and only son to become your sin, to pay the price for your sin, and he's forgiven you, then who are you not to forgive yourself? Who do you think you are? God? You're not. So how do you deal with regret? You press further into grace. You lean further into what Jesus has done for you. You lean on him. You keep your eyes on Jesus. And then you do it differently from now on. From this point on. Therefore, in light of all that, from this point on, not to earn grace, but because you have it, obey and honor Jesus. Stop wandering around the corner by her house, by the power of the Holy Spirit, motivated by grace. Don't abuse grace, but honor the giver of grace. Because he set you free so that you could be free indeed, so that you could live free. We're going to celebrate that today. We When we take communion, we often focus on death, and that's something we should focus on. Jesus' death on the cross, his body was broken, his blood was poured out. But I think sometimes we forget to focus on his life. You know he's not on the cross, right? You know he's not in the grave, right? He conquered sin and Satan and death because he died on the cross, but he also rose from the grave. And because of that, we have power over death. We have hope beyond today. We have hope for tomorrow. The Bible actually says if we only have hope for today, then we're to be pitied beyond all people. Right? You ever had one of those days? I had one yesterday, beginning Friday night, all through yesterday. Rough, brutal, to be honest with you. Yesterday before I came in here, I prayed over a woman who was breathing her last breaths. I don't know if she kept breathing after I walked out of that room. I don't even know if she's still with us right now. And it's on those days where you get in the car and you go, God, this is just too much. This is brutal. I can't take it anymore. That all we have is to hold on to the hope that we have because of the reality that on a day in history, Jesus died on a cross. And on a day in history, they put him on a, in a grave. And on a day in history, he came out of that grave and declared simply this. There's hope for today, but there's hope for tomorrow and there's hope for forever. And that's worth celebrating. So that's what we're going to do today. Pray with me. God, come before you and we admit 
openly and freely that the consistent patterns of our life do not measure up to who you are and what you've done for us. They're not worthy of who you are and what you've done for us. We fall short all the time. We mess up all the time. And yet, you still love us because of what Jesus did for us. God, for those of us in this room who've accepted your grace, received your mercy, and we follow your son Jesus, this is worthy of celebrating because you are amazing. Your grace is amazing. You are awesome. You are mighty. You are worthy of all of our lives, especially especially in this moment right now. So we just want to honor you, the giver of grace today. It's in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.